The nation's medicine cabinet has never been so full, thanks to innovative treatments developed by manufacturers. As drug prices rise, payers put up more barriers to access and require patients to shoulder more of the costs. While manufacturers have programs to address these issues, it's clear the current system is not sustainable. But what does the future of access look like? Well, let's try to answer that question on another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast, co-hosted by Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Prescription for Better Access. Today is a really exciting episode. We get to talk to two incredible people who have been dealing with their own challenges throughout their lives, but they get to tell us their story. And this episode is titled Patient Voices, The Value and Challenge of Access. So I think all of us throughout our days, throughout our weeks, throughout the year can get wrapped up with so much, whether it's a meeting or a Zoom meeting or issue or something going on, that sometimes we lose track of why we do what we do. And it really is, at the end of the day, about, about the patients and about making a difference for people. And I think we're going to hear some great stories today about how medicines have helped these individuals, but also about the challenges and what we could potentially do to have a prescription for better access. So with that, I'm excited to introduce our two guests today. First of all, we have Donna Cryer, who is not only a graduate of Harvard and, and Georgetown Law, but also incredible that she is a recipient of a liver transplant that saved her life in, during law school. And she's now gone on to not only a successful career, but she's the founder of the Global Liver Institute, which is really focused on sort of the dialogue and the discussion and the programs and initiatives to really help liver patients globally. So welcome, Donna. We're thrilled you're here. Thank you. It's glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. And we also have Reed Jewett-Smith, who's joined us. And for full disclosure, I've known Reed and her family for 25 years. So I've had a chance to know Reed and to know her story as she's battled cystic fibrosis. But she's also an experienced teacher, experienced professional, and recently earned her PhD. And she's also a patient advocate working around inclusion for people with disabilities to be recognized. So we're excited about Reed joining us. So welcome, Reed. Thank you. It's great to be here. And it's so, so nice to meet you too, Donna. Well, great. Scott, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Happy to, Mark. And welcome to both of our guests. Thanks for joining us. And Donna, let's start with you. Maybe you could begin by telling us a bit of your personal story. Sure. You know, as we record this at the beginning of the new year, I just recognize how grateful I am to be in any new year, in any new day. I think at this point, it was almost 12,000 days ago that my doctors told me I only had seven days to live. So every day since has been precious. I was in intensive care in my early 20s due to over a decade with inflammatory bowel disease that led to an autoimmune liver disease called primary sclerosis and cholangitis, which scars the bile ducts leading into the liver and caused my liver not to be able to function. So I was there in end-stage liver disease in the intensive care at Johns Hopkins, and we were blessed enough to be able to find a, a liver that was a match. So many people aren't as fortunate, and so that really gives me the motivation to do what I do today. Yeah, fantastic. 
Well, we're so happy for you as well. Our focus obviously is about patients and patient access to medicines. And I'm sure with a background like that, you probably have had your own needs for medicines and may still have some of your own needs for accessing medicines. Have you had any challenges accessing your medications? Which has been your experience? I've encountered a few medications along the way. <laughs> I remember initially being discharged after transplant with basically a fishing tackle box full of medications. I think there were 17 different drugs that I was on, some to counter effects of the drugs that I was taking to modulate my immune system, to kill viruses and bacteria and everything that I was so vulnerable to, particularly in those early stages. And then we go to come to the current day where, yes, I'm still on one medication for my transplant, but others for the still the underlying inflammatory bowel disease. And certainly am grateful for vaccines and flu shots and things that are able to keep me working and podcasting rather than being sick or, or other alternatives. And so when I think about access to innovative medications, it really starts with understanding what you even need to have access to. So much of what my parents and then me and then now my team and the, the folks that I lead at the Global Liver Institute work with with people is understanding what medications, treatments, devices, services, types of care and supports that they should even be attempting to access to give them the most personalized and best opportunity for, for a healthy outcome. And so that's the, always the key question to me. What are we trying to have access to? Right. Obviously, an important set of questions there. And, and then assuming you solve for that, what's your experience been in navigating insurance and patient cost sharing and, and those kinds of things? I am glad that I finished law school. <laughs> <laughs> it has come in handy. My husband is a physician. There are, there are times he, he hands me the phone. He's like, we're going to go into insurance healthcare navigation mode. That's not anything I learned in medical school. That's you over there in, in the law. So I've been very grateful for that. I've also been grateful that after I finished law school, I really felt that I needed to help solve for issues around access to, to transplantation. And so I've been in healthcare ever since professionally as well as personally. And so that understanding of the different drivers of the different actors and entities within the ecosystem of healthcare have been so very helpful for me being able to access for myself, you know, first and foremost, sort of like putting my own oxygen mask on making sure that I'm healthy enough to be able to, to advocate. And so having worked for an insurance company helped me understand how to structure conversations with them and better questions about benefit design that people may not know are available. So I'm usually pretty successful in advocating for the care that I need but it's because I know a lot of the ways and means and backdoors and secret secret questions and, and handshakes or just have confidence to, to push back when there is a denial or something or to work with my 
physicians back office with their nurses to say, you know, well, I think you need this code <laughs> and file it again in this way. And so it has been really the reason that I created the Global Liver Institute is because I recognize that without those skills, most patients don't have access to all of the things that I've been able to put together for myself to be able to live such a full and functional life. And so the work that we do to equip patients to be first their own advocates or advocate for a family member, and then to do our advocacy on a larger scale to make sure fewer people have to go through those things has become my life's work. Yeah, that's great. Well, obviously, you've had a very interesting background, both personally and now professionally. And as you mentioned, you're actually leading a uh, patient advocacy group in liver disease. Could you tell us a bit more about how that came to be and what the focus of your organization is now? Sure. On the 20th anniversary of my liver transplant, I really wanted to be thoughtful, to be mindful. Would other patients coming behind me have access to the type and level of, of innovation that saved my life and sustains me today? The medication that I'm still on was called FK506 at the time. It was so new. And so how do we make sure that there is an environment for other liver patients to continue to develop treatments and then make sure that they actually get them. And so while there are several organizations throughout the space and the ecosystem that were working on research and we wanted to support those, even if something was invented, say, for example, a cure for hepatitis C, just off the top of my head, would people actually get it? And so there wasn't an organization for all those different parts of the problem, physician education, as well as patient education and clinical pathways and reimbursement policy, value policy that made sure that at the end of the day, someone actually got a treatment that the rest of the field had worked so hard to create. And so that's really what the, uh, the Global Liver Institute does. You know, we work with one organization in particular that's very well-regarded in, in preclinical research. And I, and I would explain that they're sort of like obstetrics and we're pediatrics. So they make sure that a healthy baby is born, there's a drug on the market, and then we make sure that that baby is raised right, that it has a good home, and, and it has all the things that it needs. And so I, I think that's sort of the, the, you know, the best analogy or, or metaphor to describe the Global Liver Institute and our function in the ecosystem. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I had the chance to do some background research on your organization and the website and its offerings, and it's it's super impressive, and I recommend it to all of our listeners that might be interested in learning more about that. So thanks. Mark, is there anything additionally you'd like to ask Donna before we transition to Reed? Absolutely, but let's. Uh, why don't we get a chance to hear Reed's story? Reed, why don't we start with similar questions? Why don't you tell us about sort of your personal journey? Sure. I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis or CF at age five, and I grew up in the Washington area, and I was treated there for my whole life. And CF is a genetic degenerative disease that primarily affects the respiratory and digestive tracts because of a cellular imbalance that creates extra thick and sticky mucus. And so for the organs that are lined with mucus, when you have this buildup of very thick and sticky mucus, it slows down or in the case of the lungs, traps infection, now digestive tract, it slows things down and creates this sort of interlocking 
series of symptoms and crises. And so for the first 33 years of my life, it was really sort of like playing catch up. I would have increasing hospitalizations as I got sicker and sicker as I got older. I had steadily decreasing or declining lung function. And again, I I feel like when I was growing up, we were really just sort of playing catch up or trying to keep my head above water, waiting for sort of the next generation of meds to come out and to be sort of just healthy enough to really benefit from the next generation of medications. And I was incredibly lucky to have an incredibly well-resourced and knowledgeable family that was able to sort of throw all of their time into my well-being. And that includes an extended network of physicians and, and neighbors and family members who were incredibly dedicated to sort of helping me get to that next milestone. So when I was five, it was getting to 12. And then I was 12, it was getting to 18. And then it was 18, it was 25. And so I feel like I I spent the first 33 years just sort of trying to keep my head above water so that I could benefit from the what was then felt like this really incredible pace of innovation with medications. Well, that's, that's great. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have been one of those neighbors. So just so proud of how you've grown and managed this, uh, obviously, it can be challenging disease and become the person that you are. And so you've had the opportunity to benefit from some of the new uh, modulators from Vertex. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I mean, and that to me was sort of the the latter half of the 90s and the early 2000s. There were sort of these rumblings and there were trials that we know about. And there was this sort of engine churning behind the scenes of these new modulator therapies. And initially, the trials were only open to people who met certain thresholds for being sort of not too sick, but more sick than I was. And so I never qualified for trials in high school or college. And when I was in my late 20s, I got access to the first generation of these drugs that went public. And the pace of innovation is changing so rapidly that now they're like, they're so much better than they were even five or six years ago. And Trikafta is a medication that's made by Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And it has completely changed the course of my adult life, both in terms of my career, my education, my family, the family I thought I'd never have, and my marriage, my relationships with family. It's been an unbelievable Whatever the good equivalent to trauma is, like a a massive shift in the way that I think about the world and myself in it and what I'm able to do in this future I never thought I had. So it's been a remarkable seismic shift in the way that my life operates right at about 33. Including baby hope. Yeah, so that was one of the crazy things. So in terms of the impact of what Trikafta has done to my health, I think there are really sort of three like buckets that I can think about the impact. One is just this tremendous relief from daily symptoms, right? So what used to be three hours a day of treatments and medications and routines, I now take three pills at each meal and it's just like, it's stunning. The decrease in the time that I've gotten back and the, the shift in the maintenance and the routines and the therapies. And with that has come this incredible cessation of hospitalization. I've not been in the hospital since March of 2020. The day that we found out about the pandemic, I was in the hospital and I was really sick. I was really pregnant. And we found out about COVID coming down the pipeline and they said, we need you out of the hospital. And so I got my pick line pulled and I said, I'm taking my first dose of Trikafta, which I'd been waiting to do because I was pregnant. And that in and of itself is a remarkable piece of this modulator puzzle for me is that it reversed infertility. CF, one of the byproducts is infertility because of that sticky mucus. And I went to extraordinary lengths for five years to have one baby, ended up using an egg donor, having an amazing, perfect daughter in incredible health. It was an imperfect pregnancy. And then we thought that was it. And then two years later on modulator therapy, spontaneous, miraculous pregnancy. And I now 
have two bustling daughters and a life full of toddlers, and it's <laughs> come as a huge surprise. Well, that's that's what it's all about, and that's why we do we all do what we do, including those in the industry who who are creating, like Donna mentioned, drugs that were in development 20 years ago that people benefit from now and and others that you're able to benefit, read from the products from Vertex. So let's, let me just, if I could, on, on the issue of access to Trifacta, or Trikafta, if I could, tell us what that, that has been like. Yeah, so I mean, the, the price tag for Trikafta is almost laughable. It's in the uh, several hundred thousand dollars a year, so six figures a month. And I can't echo enough what Donna has said, which is that at the end of the day, it really comes down to knowledge. And I think it's a knowledge puzzle. And I think for me, I have had insurance through employers throughout my adult life, either my employer or my husband's. And it has taken extreme diligence in planning, particularly when transitioning between different insurers. It has taken like hours and hours of time networking, talking to different insurance companies and specialty pharmacies that they partner with and the copay assistance programs and just ping-ponging back and forth between my providers, their providers, their specialty pharmacies, the old one, the new one, when was the last? I mean, just the amount of time that goes into that and the meeting, like the knowledge that you need to have of systems has been, is extraordinary. And so I have been very lucky that I've had access to all three generations of Orkambi, Simdeco, and now Trikafta, right, as they've hit the market through insurance providers. But it's certainly never been, it's never been straightforward. Well, and, and just recently, earlier last year, in 2022, Vertex announced changes to the 2023 copay program. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, so I, I've been keeping up. Again, I'm I'm very lucky that on January one, my insurance provider is continuing to cover my access to Trikafta. And the way that I I understand the situation is that because this highly specialized drug development and these niche drugs that serve small populations of people with rare diseases is incredibly costly. The drug companies and the manufacturers have created these very generous copay subsidy programs to help patients deal with the out-of-pocket copay expenses. And now what feels like is there's a little bit of a ping pong or a back and forth between the insurance companies who have sort of gotten savvy to the manufacturer's programs that are meant to benefit the patient's copay. And now those copay assistance programs are coming back and have gotten savvy to the way that the insurance industry itself has adjusted to capitalize on those copay programs. So what I understand is that Vertex is basically adjusting its ceilings or what it's willing to pay out because of changes that have happened in the insurance industry. But I think at the end of the day, it's patients who have these new adaptive insurance programs, which are called maximizers or accumulators, really can be left in a lurch with these sizable, and when I say sizable, I could mean you know, several thousand dollars a month copays. And I think happily, this is not affecting government insurance programs. But I think for a lot of us with private insurance, we have to just be incredibly careful and 10 steps ahead so that you don't get caught in a lurch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just point out the reason it doesn't impact the government insured patients is that the copay assistance programs from, directly from the manufacturers aren't permitted at all for those patients. And so it's not like they have a, a better benefit. But this particular aspect of the evolution of it doesn't apply to them. That's right. There are some recent economic articles about the potential distortion of copay assistance programs. I was disappointed with The Economist, though, because she didn't then propose a solution. 
And you can't just take something away from patients and families that is helping make the costs possible. I'm not even saying reasonable, possible for people without putting something in its place. And so I absolutely agree that the system has been subject to so much gamesmanship that all sides need to lay down their arms so that we can understand what is a fair price for a drug, its impact on payers and employers and programs as well as people. But there also has to be a fair return to the manufacturers. If all the value is soaked up inside a PBM or inside an insurance vertical, then that's distorting the market more than any of these sort of bandages or, or salvages. And so if we really want to get a place where we can support ongoing research and development and true innovation, because so many of, treat, of the conditions, particularly for in the rare disease space, do not have any treatments at all. And so how do we incentivize innovation and investment in creating treatments for those conditions without having such exorbitant prices that nobody realistically can pay them. And so there is formal and informal rationing going on and people trying to stay one step ahead of some other actor in the ecosystem. That's nonsense. We can do better. Yeah, that's really well said, Donna. I always, makes me think, I always add fair coverage for the patients to the domains, you know, that you mentioned in terms of the pricing and the value and the return to the manufacturer. It's important that the patients, when you get that good fair price, that the patients have good access to those medicines as well. And I also agree your point about the the layered complexity of the back and forth game, gamesmanship at this point, is actually itself adding more challenge and, and hardship to all the things that are, as you described earlier, are already difficult to begin with. Understanding what to do, how to do it, where to go, who to see, who to believe, and then navigating your basic just basic insurance, let alone all of these added complexities. So, well said. Well, that and that also leads to a, a topic, which is that access, of course, is involving the healthcare system as well, right? And so, let's start with Donna and then Reed as well. You both have been obviously intimately close with the hospital systems, the provider communities. Where do you see, as you look to 2023 and ahead, like where are these stress points throughout the healthcare system? And where do you think that we might be able to potentially develop solutions to, to make a difference? I see nothing but stress points. There are solutions. But at this point, I think we need to acknowledge how many areas of the healthcare system are stressed. Our physicians are stressed and beyond burnt out. And many are leaving medicine because, you know, we just got through another congressional where they're talking about physician payment cuts. There is no physician office where their expenses are going down. So the fact that we're talking about cuts under Medicaid or, or, Medi or any other program is, is just should be a non-starter. So physicians are burnt out. Nurses are, are beyond burnt out. There aren't enough of them. There aren't enough nursing professors to produce more nursing students. There are the intensity of being nurses right now and younger nurses with higher acuity patients it is just creating a very vicious cycle that is exacerbating a nursing shortage. And then there's hospital consolidation. And so when you see surges, whether it's a pediatric respiratory or, or any other type, the hospitals either aren't there in the community 
or don't have the flexibility and capacity to be able to accommodate patients. And so what I see coming down the pike is the rise of more community health workers. But I think we can't just assume that people, mostly daughters, will be able to just take on these extra responsibilities. We need to fund, we need to train an increasingly diverse set of people within our communities to be able to help everyone with their individual health care and, and caregiving needs is a spotlight at that intersection of understanding social determinants of health and social justice issues and the workforce issues within healthcare. I think this development in a meaningful way, in a more robust and scalable way of, of investments in community health workers will be one of the most prominent solutions. And Reed, from your perspective? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I loved how you answered that sort of from the 30,000 level view. So I'll correspond by thinking about just like the patient side and the logistics of patient and management. I mean, for me, I see the way that that turnover in personnel within my sort of micro clinic of the adult cystic fibrosis center, where I go is how clinic personnel and turnover primarily in nurses who do the day-to-day -day care, who are answering emails or phones, how that affects care and having to sort of retell your story and trace your whole history. And the lack of continuity, I think, has a highly individualized effect, not just like at the policy level. From the patient end, I also think one of the stress points is changes to insurance because it's tied to our employment. In the last six months, I graduated from school. My insurance switched to my spouse. It's going to switch back in another six months once I start working full-time. And just those changes that come with shifting employment, I think, provide incredible challenges for people. And so I think that that system remains deeply imperfect. I think navigating and reading billing from hospitals when you have complex stays is an unreal challenge. Again, with a law degree and a PhD, like I still sort of shudder. It's rough. And then I also think dealing with like the fallout, if you're able to secure access on the like on the debt-based end of being left with these, whether it's large co-pays or hospital stays is just incredibly complex and time-consuming and overwhelming and draining. So I think that those are some of the, the stress points from dealing with long-term chronic or interacting with the medical system consistently for major ongoing chronic things, yeah. Reed, you mentioned earlier the manufacturer copay assistance cards. I'm curious whether either of you have had personal experience with manufacturer-sponsored support programs of different kinds, copay cards, free goods, reimbursement support, and you know the hub providers. I do definitely for my inflammatory bowel disease treatments. And even though I now am on a generic biologic or a biosimilar, there still is the need to have uh, copay assistance. It's rather a, a seamless process from my point of view as a patient because the doctor's office handles that directly. And so from that perspective, it runs smoothly and does what it is supposed to do. I am mindful of the differences, um, some, some issues in dealing with inflammatory bowel disease, biologics, between the biosimilars and the innovator brands, between where you get your infusion, if you're getting an infusion treatment, you know, an in-hospital infusion center versus a community hospital setting, increasingly there are oral and injectable. And so I think that the, the financial implications of those choices need to be made more clear to patients as they're making their choices, along with just the, the clinical effectiveness and, and response. And so those are some of the issues. But from my 
personal experience on, on that side of it, it's rather seamless. It's, it's the hard stuff to get is saline. I can't get salt water <laughs> for my dehydration. And I'm privileged to be able to, you know, there are services now and I can have a nurse come to my house and, and give me a, a leader. But the fact that the healthcare system can't figure out how to do that for an, an IBD patient is a big flaw. Yeah. Good point. Reed, do you have experience? Yeah, it's funny you say that. Last month I was at a checkup and I was doing IV antibiotics. So I was getting saline infusions. I had a saline nasal rinse and a saline nebulizer. So we have that in common. Yeah, I have had copay assistance for years for all of my Vertex manufactured modulators, as well as from AbbVie for my digestive enzymes. And I'm really lucky because I have a licensed clinical social worker who works at my CF clinic, who does all of that, who's sort of like our advocate, who will place a lot of those grisly calls to insurers and wait on the phone with copay programs. And so that I have a figure who is dedicated to like putting it in layman's terms and helping us understand and navigate those systems is great. But yeah, I have been the beneficiary of both of those programs for as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Would you have any advice based on your respective experiences for manufacturers about how they might be able to improve their services? Are there gaps, things that you wish you had that didn't exist? I do. But frankly, I need to have a pile of legal text and my policy person on the other line with me to be able to venture to advise them appropriately in this current environment. We were able to get some provisions in the legislation that just made it through before the end of the year to make sure some innovative technologies were available to ensure developments in some cancer medications. It is truly complex and it's a privilege to know that I can handle the complexity professionally so that other people don't have to handle it personally while they're not feeling well. I, this used to be where I'm filming, this is, used to be like my guest room and a friend of ours who unfortunately was unsuccessful in her battling of her multiple rare diseases, stayed for several weeks while she tried to, to heal. And the difficulties in trying to, of all of us in our sort of collective healthcare connections and, and knowledge, some of us were physicians as well, and our inability to get her all the things that she needed while knowing that she worked in the innovation section for a health insurance company is the irony of my life. And so manufacturers and their copay programs are one part of this. But as Dr. Smith so articulately uh, you know, detailed, they are in this at least triangle. It's probably a, a, you know, a hexagon or more, but at least a triangle of medical, legal, economic incentives that all need to be disentangled together. Reed, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I'm also really happy to see sort of a broader societal shift to thinking about equity and inclusion in spaces that we used to think of as sort of neutral, right? Like medicine or science. And I think like- Who thought? Like who, every- who thought? Who thought? I'm just going to say no. <laughs> we never. I'm so glad that some of you on this could have the, you know, the grace to just the privilege of being able to ever think, ever think that that was that neutral. That was neutral, yeah. Healthcare was never neutral. Science has never been neutral. No. 
No, what I mean, but the discourse of like neutralizing things seems to have gone out the window fully, right? Like we seem to have done away with that. And I think like everything else with respect to dealing with any any conversation about a marginalized population, this needs to be a conversation that is both systemic and sustained and involves both private and public commitments to democratizing access. So I don't have a specific recommendation for drug companies, mostly because I'm just not in a not in a position to sort of comment beyond this isn't my like professional domain. I'm just sort of speaking here as a as a patient consumer for all these years. But I certainly understand if it's, you know, talking about privilege, if it's this difficult with somebody with my knowledge resources and incredible access to not just unpack and understand these systems, but sometimes even get medications still at this point, it just is a testament to the incredible inequities that that dominate this system like so many others. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's let's go there for a second if we could, because I had the opportunity to, to read Linda Villarosa's book, Under the Skin. She spoke at my alma mater, Virginia Commonwealth University, last fall. And it's just an eye-opener in terms of what it's like to literally live as a Black American in the healthcare system. And Donna, obviously, this is something that you've experienced. So from your perspective, what are some things that could be done to improve things? Well, I think it starts with governance. So I now sit on the board of my hospital and I ask different questions than some of the other board members do. And I think then you go through every, every, every layer of it. You go through the healthcare system leadership and that's in pharma, in insurance, in hospital systems, um, in the staffing. I think there's something, I'll tell a, a little story that's sort of different about how I walk through life. My former boss, many, many years ago, walked in my office and he's like, you have heat. It was in the winter. And I was like, I just smiled to myself. Of course, I have heat. In my mind, I was like, of course, I have heat because I let the mailman, the guy in the mailroom who was black, hold $10 until payday. He probably, my boss probably did not know this person's name. So I walk through and I see people in the healthcare system, in the hospitals that often aren't seen, that are really important to the system. During COVID, we realized how important the maintenance staff was to infection control and how retention of them is important and also how they can often be the key communicators throughout communities that were essential to have trust in vaccines and and in healthcare. And so one of the things that I think is becoming more generally recognized is the definition that we have had of who is essential was upside down. And so I welcome everybody who previously didn't have that knowledge to that knowledge. And I'm excited to work on those, those issues together. But they are not new. You know, the things that we call health disparities and health inequalities and now the social determinants of, of health and health caps, they've always been there. New to you, welcome. Work on them with us. And so it's exciting that just as years ago I was asked when I was consulting on issues of patient engagement, okay, that was great. What are we going to do next year? I'm like, next year we're going to do patient engagement too. It's not a trend. It's the thing. And so I think health equity again is, is we're going to do this again next year and hopefully the year after that and the year after that it's not a trend it's the thing itself and so i think that's what people need to remember and that's what needs to be 
staffed for and funded and, and accounted for and not in some one section or one department or one team, but it needs to be built into the operations of every part of the system. And so that's what we're starting to see that realization that this is not, not just a, a moment, but a movement. And so I'm here for that. I'm here for that change. Well, I, I think we all are here for that change. And from the CMS issued their national expenditures report in December of 2022. And in it, for the first time, households, the cost of our total healthcare system in 2021, they estimated at $4.3 trillion. And for the first time in history, over a trillion dollars of that is paid for by households of which the largest portion of that is out-of-pocket expenses. And that also was the fastest growing portion of, of expenses was the impact on individuals. So with that lens, I want you to, again, put the patient perspective hat on. Scott and I are asking all of our guests the same question, and I'd want to open it up to the both of you as well, as to what is your prescription for better access? I think it's the decoupling of health insurance from employment. Dr. Smith, you talked about how all these changes in a short period of time are giving you adjective because it may make your treatments you know, insecure. People shouldn't have to go through that type of insecurity. I think the ACA has certainly done a lot towards decoupling that. Most people are covered under some type of public program than a private program at this point. And so we need to, to recognize that and improve that. But I also think we need to recognize that the elements that go into health are also food and housing. And as inflation has eroded the buying power of those, we're not going to be healthier. We're not going to make, be able to make the decision about, I should fill this prescription that my doctor gave me because I can't afford it, because I can't afford childcare or food or a roof over my head. And so we can't pretend that all of those things aren't interconnected. And as a government, as a society, we're going to have to better integrate the supports for all of those and try to solve for healthy and health within an individual construct because health technology assessments that assume perfect health is not appropriate for a disability community. But what is that person's optimal health within their context? And how can we support that? In many cases, we can support that for a lot less money than we're throwing at the problems now in such a disjointed fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Reed, do you have a prescription for better access? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I fundamentally agree with your point about employment and the vulnerabilities that that opens up people to. And I think, you know, it's so interesting, the substance of this conversation, this isn't something that we learn about in school. You know, it's a little bit like financial literacy where we're all just sort of left to our own devices to navigate this system. And the people who are often in need of the most sophisticated medications or the most intensive care have this undue burden to learn this system, often in a time of incredible need. And like everything else, people are positioned very unequally to be able to do this. So I guess it's sort of predictable as a scholar of knowledge and knowledge systems that I really believe that knowledge of health systems is what empowers patients as consumers. And we are still positioned as consumers because this is a largely privatized apparatus and that that knowledge of health systems is 
reflective of the same socioeconomic and sociocultural disparities that either grant, limit, or mediate people's access to resources, to systems and systemic knowledge, and to advocacy networks and systems. And then uh, I've said this before, but I really think time is a critical ingredient here. It's the time to self-teach. It's the time to make calls. It's the time to reach people who can open doors and to often find the resources to put towards an incredibly, everybody's sort of pathway to access ends up being really unique because we don't we don't have well-worn sort of systems or knowledge that get us to well-being. So I think, and I attribute my success through three generations of people that have cared for me down to knowledge of health systems and access and how to do that is actually as critical as the technical innovation or advancement of medications. I think they're equal ingredients in my being here. Well, that's great. Donna, did you want to add anything? I was going to say, absolutely, absolutely. And so we need to mitigate for that for people who don't have that. And I, I would go so far even as to just as we have a clinical risk adjustment um, for physician payments to have a socioeconomic or health literacy or health social vulnerability risk adjustment for physician and, and practice payments so that we can bring more resources to practices to support those patients who need it to help them get access to the best care. By the way, these are both excellent prescriptions for better access. I think Scott and I would agree on that. But I realized, Reed, I did not ask you about the organization that you're consulting for around disability inclusion. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? No, I'd be really happy to. So when I finished my PhD last year, I started working with an organization and I'm now there heading towards full-time as I tie up some other career loose ends. That's called Disability In. And Disability In is a global organization. It's a nonprofit that does disability inclusion and equality advocacy in business. And we help businesses achieve disability inclusion across the enterprise, but also do a lot of broader corporate mainstreaming about disability sort of education and awareness. And I run our research initiatives and I work with this incredibly empathic team with some of the strongest leaders I've ever met. And I feel incredibly lucky to have lived long enough to sort of have find my calling in this space. And it's a really cool next chapter. And I said this before, or I, I sort of alluded to it. I, I was a classroom teacher for 10 years and I loved teaching and I loved teaching history. And when I was getting sicker and sicker, it was getting harder to stay in the classroom full time. And so when I was 30 years old, I decided that I wanted to do something sort of really big as I felt my health was declining and I needed a different environment because I thought I, whatever, it was a lot of things. I thought I was getting sicker. I was going to the hospital. I thought I wasn't going to have a family. And so I said, I want to go get a PhD. This is going to be my swan song and this is going to be my big achievement. This is what I'm going to do. And then all of a sudden, halfway through, I start these new meds. I take these modulators. And then <laughs> last fall, as I was sort of completing chapter five, I was like, oh, I need to go out and have another career now. Like I have all these years. I was like, this isn't my swan song. Like this is the start of chapter two. So I was like, okay, so now I have to use this PhD. Like that was gonna be my crowning achievement. But now it's like, I should probably like put this to work because now I have 20 more years to work. And so uh, I, I ended up sort of stumbling upon disability and, um, and I'm just incredibly happy to have found this new um, family and a sort of space to combine my interest in education and in looking at a lot of systemic flaws in the way our education system is structured and now turning that to adults who have chronic medical conditions and disabilities in the workforce and how meaningful work can be as an antidote to dealing with chronic health problems. 
Reed, we're going to be great friends because my law school classmates tease me. They tease me at our 10th reunion. They're like, we've always wanted to know, if you thought you were going to die, why'd you go to law school? <laughs> I know. That day when I was like, oh, like, I guess I should have a career now. <laughs> what am I going to do? Like, sit at home with a... So, yeah, it's wild. Well, both of you, I mean, what a great way to wrap up this wonderful conversation. And I think it sort of goes to why we're all here, right? Which is these incredible miracles that are coming out of the healthcare system and the ability to to give so many patients a chapter two, right? And I think that's why we're here. And thank you so much to both of you for telling your stories and sharing this with others who I, who I know will, uh, will benefit from this. So, so thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. And Scott, this is where you and I get to wrap up. We have about 30 seconds left before Pat pulls the plug on us. What are your thoughts today? Well, Mark, it was, it's great. It, as you know, it's always great to be able to connect with folks that have been patients themselves and are working diligently in the patient advocacy arena as well. That's what motivates all of us in this industry, as you know. But I was struck by a, a number of recurring themes here, one about the complexity of our healthcare system, uh, insurance and provider side and the navigation of all that and the way that it interacts back and forth and how that adds to the complexity as well over time. The foundational importance of knowledge and having a great support network, which, you know, not everyone can count on, which is very clear. I was pleased to hear about the value, the importance of the manufacturer-sponsored services, that they are having some impact that matters to folks, the hope for a more inclusive healthcare system for the future, and also this notion of decoupling insurance from employment, I thought was quite interesting and valuable as well. And finally, I think, you know, you could see both those latter two topics through a lens of fairness, foundationally, if you will. And Donna struck an important note around that for me in the medications as well. Fairness in the pricing and the value of the medicine, fairness in terms of a return for the manufacturers to do the research, and then fairness for the coverage for the patients as well, which, as you know, I'm a big supporter of all those things. Well, that's great. By the way, you're an incredible co-host, so thank you for summarizing that so well. And let me just wrap up by saying that we will uh, have in the show notes a link to both the Global Liver Institute as well as Disability In, the both organizations that Donna and Reed are a part of. And thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Prescription for Better Access. And sign up, register for notifications for our next episode. Thank you, everybody, and be well. Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you. Thank you.